Welcome, everyone, to episode 188 of Some Like It's Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're strapping on our loincloths and grabbing a hand axe as we go back to the 9th and 10th centuries, Robert Eggers' epic revenge drama, The Northman. Before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Are you feeling like a real alpha after your film experience this weekend? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's definitely a dude's rock type of movie, but... Um, we talked about it a few weeks ago. This was a big month for me in terms of movies because my yeah. top two anticipated movies from last year were coming out. Um, one of them being Apollo 10 and a half, which we talked about in our last episode. And then this one, um, which, you know, we've been hearing about for a little bit now, um, but for obvious reasons, got me excited with the cast. And, um, you know, the trailer was one of the most exciting trailers in a while. So was very excited um, to see this movie and uh, not to spoil anything, but I think it mostly delivered on what I wanted. Yeah. You know, you talked about what we talked about in our last episode. We didn't get to Fantastic Beasts and <laughs> Secrets of Dumbledore in our last episode, which which we I think we had said at the end of the what episode. What a shame. Um, you can thank COVID for that, Scott. I did have COVID last week, was not able to go to the movie theater. To see it, you... Didn't want to go to the movie theater to see it. Correct. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess everyone was fine in the end. I mean, it wasn't great having COVID, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. I'm fine now. Didn't really have any that significant of symptoms, to be fair. Just sort of had half a day's worth of symptoms and then had to isolate for 10 days. So that was fun. Um, so it goes, though. And so now we're here. So we get to go to the Northman. So we, we probably we probably skipped your your least anticipated movie of last year no that one is still coming out unfortunately i saw the trailer for that one before the northman but um which fantastic beast oh jurassic world uh, oh it, okay yeah yeah the title true. of it is but yeah is it the, i don't know it's dominion, not fallen kingdom maybe? that was the last one right it's dominion I dominion that's what it is yeah. is that actually yeah it is Dominion. but yeah no it, fantastic it, beast was probably the second least anticipated so um I was joking to you last week that before Jurassic World comes out, I'm going to go lick some toothbrushes or something to try and get COVID myself so we can result in the same. We can have the same result as what happened last week. Well, it's all good that we can make COVID. But jokes about catching COVID now, now that we're two years post COVID, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we're here to talk this week about The Northman, Robert Eggers' third feature-length film, co-written with famous Icelandic writer Sean, based on the legend of Amleth. If you're thinking to yourself that the name Amleth sounds a lot like Hamlet, well, you're on the right track, as the Northman recounts the story of Amleth, a princeling to the kingdom on the Icelandic island of Ravensny as a boy. He witnesses the murder of his father, King Avrendil, played by Ethan Hawke, at the hands of his own brother, Amleth's uncle, Fjolnir, played by Kleist Bang, who then also takes Amleth's mother, Queen Gudrun, by Nicole Kibben, as his wife. Amleth is able to escape by boat and swears to avenge his father, save his mother, and kill his uncle. Fast forward a number of years, and Amleth has been raised by a band of Viking raiders as a berserker, a warrior who fights with a trance-like fury, channeling his inner beast. After the conquering of a village in the Rus territory, Amleth encounters a seeress, played by Bjork, who reminds Amleth of his oath of vengeance and predicts that Amleth will soon take his revenge on Fjolnir. Shortly after, Amleth overhears Fjolnir's exile to Iceland after losing his territory to Harald of Norway, and inspired by his encounter with the Cirrus, Amleth boards the slave ship set to deliver slaves to Fjolnir's kingdom, where he meets and forms the beginnings of a bond with a self-proclaimed sorceress, Olga, 
played by Scott's favorite, Anya Taylor-Joy. And I will stop there. No more spoilers. That, that was a, a decent chunk of, of the first act of the movie, to be fair. But I think that gets us off on the right track, with The Northman largely being heralded pre-release for its visual splendor, immense production value, and Edgar's signature style. Do you agree with the critics, Scott, raving about this medieval epic? Or for all of The Northman's attempts at conjuring the essence of circa 900 A.D., where you left once wanting something a bit more captivating. Yeah, so this is obviously a different film for Robert Eggers in the sense that uh, the scale of it is something. Yeah, everyone was saying this is like his other two movies. I have not seen The Witch. This seems quite different than The Lighthouse. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, I haven't seen The Lighthouse, so I can't say. But I, I feel like what I was going to say is the scale of it is obviously very different. Yeah, huge. Um, yeah. I mean, he had like quadruple the budget for this movie. Hundred million dollars to make this movie, whereas, of course, The Witch and The Lighthouse were made for A twenty four. They were low budget movies, um, and this is now made for focus features. Um, and you know, he's got big movie stars in his cast. Uh, you know, to be to be fair, he had a movie star in his last movie with Robert Pattinson, um, Willem Dafoe. And, and, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know that I would quite call him a movie star, but. Pattinson yeah. for sure, but sure. Um, Anya Taylor Joy, you know, somebody that he made basically into what she is um, today, with giving her her first real major role in The Witch. Um, but then also, of course, um, you know, Nicole Kidman and um, Ethan Hawke, you know, big names in this movie. Um, but what I was going to say is that even though um, you know the movie is much larger scale than what he's done, it still feels like his vision through and through throughout this entire movie, um, which is something I think I always worry about when I see that like Barry Jenkins is doing the Lion King or whatever, um, you know, or for a, a recent example of one that did go south was Chloe Zhao doing the Eternals. Um, you know, what is going to be sort of the relationship here between the studio, the, you know, distributor, all that, and the person making the film is, or, you know, is Eggers going to have to compromise some of his weirder sensibilities um, in order to appeal to the bigger audience that this movie is obviously going for. I mean, this movie wants to be something bigger than the witch or the lighthouse was. Um, All I'll say to that, Scott, in response to just that exact point is that, and, and not to, I, I work for NBC universal. So take this with a grain of salt, but like you're talking about Disney versus, you know, a, a, a very specific sort of, not art house, but like catering towards that prestige film with focus features. I think those are two very different um, sensibilities in terms of the movies they're making. Sure. And I mean, Robert Eggers presumably would not have, you know, yeah. sold his soul in a way that, you know, was not going to give him any creative control. So if, in terms of teaming up with a bigger studio, he probably knew what he was doing here and he went down the right, you know, path with focus features, knowing that he was going to be able to make. The movie that he wanted to make and he did and i think the movie is a fantastic experience especially on the big screen um i think that you know when you get into the weeds a little bit more there are some things about the story the characters there are some holes there i think totally. um, i don't think yeah. I, th I don't think it all comes together um i think certain aspects of the story certain relationships maybe um I don't fully work for me a hundred percent, but like I said, I think the movie is able to overcome that because 
the sensory experience, the visceral experience of watching the movie in the theater is just kind of unmatched. Um, and that makes it, I think, even though I like all of the performances, I think it's, it's, this is Robert Eggers movie. Like he is the MVP of the, the movie in terms of he is the one who's building that world, building that atmosphere, creating that um, experience that we're talking about. Um, and that is, you know, it's strange. It's weird. There's these, you know, there's this ritual sequence early on. That's really bizarre. There's all the stuff with Bjork, as you mentioned, as the seer who is predict, you know, uh, reminding him of basically what his mission was um, and setting him on the path to kill Fjolnir and save his mother and avenge his father. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's Bjork. So it's going to be weird as you would expect. And you can kind of not hear her and it's, it's a, it's a strange sequence. Um, and then, you know, there's just the dialogue you mentioned that he um, worked with the Icelandic poet on this. Um, this is something that is consistent. I think with Robert Eggers other work is that the dialogue is very like old fashioned. That is true. Um, very sure. evocative. They're period evocative. pieces. Yeah, evocative of the period that yeah. it is in, um, which are, you know, really, uh, these movies are set in really old times, like all three of his movies, really. I mean, The Lighthouse, I don't exactly know what the time period was, but... I think this is by um, far the earliest, but yeah. yeah I think The Lighthouse is... Yeah. And, and of course, The Witch was in, like, colonial New England, but... Exactly. The, um, you know, the, Robert Eggers has said, there's a quote going around where they were like, will you ever make a movie in modern times? And he was like, gosh, I hope not. So, um, I don't know. Nosferatu right. is supposed to be his next movie, but they're having some issues with that one. Well, he's been trying to anyway. make Nosferatu since since The Witch, yeah. I think. But anyway. The Lighthouse um, was the 1890s, so that's a little bit so, more recent. Yeah, still, yeah. We, we haven't even gotten to the 20th century yet with one of his movies, but... Um, yeah, so, so that kind of stuff creates this <laughs> weird atmosphere, right? Um, but also the action and, you know, the fury and everything that is on display here um, is, I guess you would say, more conventional. It's something that I think the conventional movie moviegoer can get a lot out of because it's very well staged. Um, he uses a lot of one takes, which is something else that he does in his movies um the you know again the scale of these battle scenes it's epic right you know it feels like you're watching a gladiator or a braveheart or something like that when these scenes are going on um and it's it, it does it, it does feel more epic than hamlet because i mean hamlet and yeah. it's the curse of being a play right that like it feels so so set in in, in a in like one scene right? it's, it's all set at this huge castle and and um yeah you know denmark and or whatever and this feels much more epic than that because, you know, they're sailing across, you know, a like the English, I don't know what channel it right. is, but they're sailing from essentially raiding Euro these towns Europe to Iceland. Um, that's like a long ride, you know? Yeah. Um, so that kind of stuff is thrilling. And again, I think it's the action is well staged and everything. And then Robert Eggers, you know, his use of the camera and use of the setting, um, I think just gives, you know, takes those action scenes to a whole another level. So while I think the movie maybe not doesn't add up to a whole lot in the end, other than like just a, you know, fun time, a thrilling, you know, sensory experience, like I said, um, it's an unforgettable one. And I don't really fault the movie for choosing to go down that lane. Um, even if I think, you know, maybe some of the story points and character points got sacrificed in the in, you know, along the way. 
Um, it's just like, like, like I said, I think about letterbox review, like when you just make something that is this cool and metal and fun to watch, um, you can overcome a lot of those issues. And I think that um, Robert Eggers is able to do that here by um, just creating something really unique out of his own brain and, and, you know, not sacrificing his vision despite the larger scale. So I was a big fan of the movie. Yeah, I think I think I mostly agree with what you're saying in terms of experience. <laughs> I, I think that if you're if you're looking for a I, I God, I always I always hesitate to use this word an authentic Viking experience. Uh, not that I would know what that is. It, like it, yeah. this just feels so. I don't know. Th- th- this feels like the closest that you're going to get watching a movie to like so- something so like brutal, right? Like that. That's the one thing I'd say. This, this film is brutal. This film is yeah. like not a big budget. What you think we would take of, of like a, a four quadrant like epic film? You say this was, is the average moviegoer, or like is somebody seeing? I think the average moviegoer is going to be shocked about how, about how violent this movie. Is. Yeah, that that is true. I was cringing in terms of uh, some of the some of how violent some of the scenes were. But people who have seen these types of epic war films before, I guess, and know that what they're getting into in that. But regard. like Troy isn't even like I don't. I'm just thinking like other epic war films, like Braveheart. None of those films are nearly as violent as this one. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't seen any of those movies in a while, but I think we might be surprised if we go back. I mean, those those movies were like rated R basically for their violence only. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, th- this one felt worse, felt worse than R, but I just maybe that's because of the watering down of of violence in culture and movie. I don't know. Maybe it'd be an interesting comparison. Maybe mm-hmm. um, I, I found it to be extremely violent. I was ready for that because all like I had seen so many headlines that were like, you are not ready for how violent this movie is. So I had like steeled myself for that, but the woman next to me, oh boy, she was not she was not ready for for what she got in this movie, um, which you know, fair enough. I there was a lot of you know sinking back into the chair, you cringing like you're saying. There was a, there was definitely a lot of that. Um, there's the there's the one scene towards the end. I forget the guy's name, but the, the guy's net whose net whose nose he cut off at the beginning of the yeah, film oh, yeah. when he kills him. Like, oh man, that is. Pushing that sword through the face. Yeah. Um, finishing the job. He understood the assignment, I guess. Uh, but yeah, look, overall, I think it, it's just a, this is a, this is a movie experience. Like, that's what I would I would describe it as. Like, if you go see this movie, you may you may end up not liking it. I think plenty of people are probably going to go see this movie and not enjoy it very much. But you're going to have an experience. And I think that that's in a lot of ways what we're not getting enough of in movies recently it feels like you're we're not getting enough of an experience when we're watching these films i think x is an example of a movie where you got an experience watching that uh, but i think besides those two we haven't had too many of those in you know in the last few months and hopefully will that will change over the course of the rest of the year i mean we talked about in our anticipated episode how there's just so many incredible filmmakers making movies this year so hopefully we're in for you know more, more of something like this but it's i said this I, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before. I definitely said it off air to you. I said it in my letterbox for you. It is unbelievable that Focus Features gave this guy nine figures to make this movie. It is unbelievable that they paid this much money for this film. They know they're not getting their money back. Is the thing. Well, yeah, now. I'm saying in 2019, yeah. when they gave him the money after the lighthouse or whatever. Uh, I mean, just like incredible. I mean, we really have to enjoy this. M- maybe the, something like this will happen again. Like maybe there is an audience or a way to make this film for you know i don't know close to that amount of budget where you get a similarly sort of defined experience um and production value but 
I just I can't see any any studio besides maybe Netflix making a movie for like this for a hundred million dollars. And frankly, I don't think this is the genre that Netflix is going to be going for with a hundred million dollar movie. So I don't think we're going to get it from them either. So it, it's just it's incredible. Like maybe Apple, like maybe Apple would make something like this. Um, it, just someone with a stupid amount of money that they don't care about what to throw at. And I just don't think that traditional movie studios are going to have the stomach. Uh, for that anymore just because I don't, I don't know that the movie going audience is there for it. I mean, it, I think it's doing quite well this weekend making $13 million. Um, but the film, I think on net. So like after they, they got their deductions cost like 70 or $80 million um, plus marketing, which there was quite a bit of marketing for this film. So it's pretty, it's pretty intense. I think the loss that, that focus is going to take on this movie, but they made a damn cool movie. So maybe people just aren't interested in medieval times anymore. Maybe that's the real uh, secret. I think if you set obviously... this if you set this in present day, though, I still don't think anyone would see it. I know. I I was mainly just you know making a yeah. joke about the fact that the last duel also flopped last year, which was a movie set in medieval times. But we've yeah, had I mean... a weird run on these movies here too. With when you think about um, the Green Knight and the Tragedy of Macbeth also coming out last year as like all being these. Yeah, set movies, which and not that yeah. the Green Knight actually did fairly well, I think, commercially for what um, for the, and I would say this is the, the closest for the Green Knight is what I thought of most when I was watching this movie, definitely mainly because yeah. of the production value. I mean, that movie was made for like ten million dollars, though, so it's like pretty crazy that that the Green Knight was made for like yeah, you know, a seventh or eighth or a tenth of the budget. Um, was it as good? I mean, in my opinion, I think this in terms of like look and feel was even better than the Green Knight. But I mean, the Green Knight still had plenty of look and feel to it. Um, this this was probably a more inter entertain like traditionally entertaining movie than mm -hmm. the Green Knight, which was a pretty slow slow burn. Um, not that we have problems with slow burns in this in this parish, but yeah. Overall, talking about, getting back to the Northmen, yeah, the performances were good. I thought Skarsgård was was good. I mean, there's just something so to your point, like Eggers is just so clearly the star of this movie. That it's hard to really see any of the performances past that. Like, I can't point to any of the performances like mm, that wasn't very, that wasn't really that good. At the same time, I'm not going to point to any of the performances and be like, you know, this is, you know, this is awards, award worthy performances yeah. from these people. And it's just the truth. Like, I thought, I thought Nicole Kidman actually ended up doing a better job than I expected from Definitely. her in, in this movie. Unfortunately, I think Annie Taylor Joy didn't really have much of a role in this movie, sadly. Um, she did the best she could. Uh, I will sure. Say. Yeah, no, I think, again, she did well for what she was given. But if we're talking about, you were talking about the sort of story and story elements that were thrown by the wayside. I think that it was hers, her yes, arc that I probably agree. got thrown by the wayside the most. Not that I wanted this film to be any longer than it was to develop it further. But I think that ultimately, that character did not get much, did not get much um, runway in the, in the yeah, film. Yeah, and since we're on the topic like sure. for me it's like you know they set it up as like you know they're on the boat and she's like or maybe maybe this is the scene after that when she says this or whatever but it's like you have the strength right you're bringing the physical strength and then i have the cunning i'm yeah, gonna i think they're in mind. iceland at that point but yeah 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 um and we're gonna basically team up and take down fielder and I feel like it didn't really deliver on that promise, right? Like Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Olga, is just kind of like working in the home, like a kitchen or whatever. Like they they have a few conversations and everything. Well, she's but mixing like, mushrooms I, into their food and making them hallucinate. Yeah, and... 
I guess. I just feel like we didn't get enough of that. Like, I totally agree. Teaming up. Yeah. Here's yeah. the brawn. Here's the brains. That like when I heard that, I was like, all right, let's go. This is going to be great. Like this is going to be like a buddy revenge movie between these two people. And instead they took it down a romantic route, which I didn't really think it needed to go or that I necessarily believed in all that much. What I will say is I think Anya Taylor-Joy, I think her performance is good because we at least see the transition that this character made. Like towards the end, she's talking about like, oh, I never thought I would open my heart to anyone or whatever. And we definitely see that change in the character from like the first time we see her on the ship, like being really. Oh, the first time we know. see her before that, did you, did you not know? She, so she's True, briefly yeah. seen I mean, before she's the ship. begging the soldiers, but, or the Vikings, whatever. Tries to stab one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she goes from being like really guarded and like not necessarily trusting anyone to by the end being this really sort of open-hearted figure who's like begging him to stay and then they're going to go raise a family together and everything so I, I you know she at, she at least makes the transition i mean she realizes that revenge isn't, isn't worth it you know what i mean yeah so you you get that in her performance i'm not sure that the script necessarily um made the that character change agreed believable or, 100%, you know yeah. well developed but credit to her i guess that like you still you you do get the change like you see that in the character you, you know there's yeah. definitely she's definitely giving a different performance by the end of the movie than she was when we first saw her it's an interesting thing to and i was thinking a little bit about this but now i'm thinking even more about it like would the film have been better if you just removed that character completely like maybe honestly no no because he has a choice he has a choice to make at the end that i think um I don't know. I think it's does that it's emotionally resonate though? Does that build the movie though? I'm not. Does that really build his character that much? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think it just it further plays into what the movie's saying about like fate, maybe or whatever, and fate like dictating his path this whole way, and that even when all conventional logic in the end is yeah. saying don't do this, don't go back, right? Like you have you know your, your love of your life here about to have your babies you're safe you're sailing away you never have to see these people again um and yet never you know something and what the movie would suggest i guess is fate is drawing him back to finish his quest no matter how much again conventional logic goes against it so i guess i would say in that regard it it does. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say I felt nothing like in that last moment of the movie where we see her there with the twins. Well, you feel, um, mm -hmm. okay. but you yeah. know, it was, it definitely wasn't what it could have been probably. Yeah. The last moment with the twin, like, I don't know. I just, I, the film is both about that and not about that. I feel like in a strange way, like the film is, is about family, obviously, and about lineage and about, you know, family yeah. honor, things like that. Like, it's obviously about that. But it's also like not about, you know, Amleth. It's also like, just about, yeah, ripping dudes' hearts out. Exa like. Exactly, right. It's about them going to the top of a volcano and fighting naked at the end of the movie. Like that's yeah. what the film's really about, um, in my mind at least, at least in terms of the experience. So it, I thought it was like visually cool to see like the Valkyrie riding up to heaven or whatever, or Valhalla, I should say. Mm. Um, I think that was like visually cool part of it, but I, I didn't feel anything when I saw the children on the screen other than like wow this guy's stupid like what an idiot um but i thought that before when, when you know he's jumping off the boat and swimming back to the shore as well so that's not really any different 
than than before, I suppose. But yeah, like I I think that things related to that character to Olga is the weak link in the movie. But sort of I, just to, just to wrap up my general thoughts because we've sort of circled around to specific from specific thoughts, and I want to go back for a second. I, I agree with you. I I think that just the the sheer quality of the production value of the film and and the and the visual imagery and the mind of Eggers, I think does manage to overcome that because even with, if you want to call it a hole, if you want to call it a problem with a plot, like at the end of the day, you're like having like multiple one shots through villages and like catching spears and throwing them back and hitting people. And just, yeah, incredible camera work, incredible design. Um, This thing was a real feast for the senses. I think is fair to say. And, um, you know, I think it really does over overcome a lot by just going as hard as it possibly can um, for, yeah. you know, two thirds of the movie. So yeah. there's that. But, you know, we talked about Annie Taylor Joy and her character. We got to give some some airtime to Alexander Skarsgård, whose name we've mentioned like once on the podcast so far, uh, even though he plays Amleth. Uh, Scott, what did you think of, you know, this this guy? And, and from as far as I can tell, I guess it's a quick note as well before we get into this that he really wanted to make this movie i mean he like went to eggers yeah, and was like i want to make a viking movie with you um eggers is like why not dude let's rock um and so they made this scott do you think that sort of the passion for doing something like this um lent to the performance that Skarsgård gives yeah definitely i mean first of all um, it's just nice to see him playing the quote unquote good guy for once um, in a, in something which he doesn't really it, ever. Sorry, is he the good guy? Is there a good I mean, guy? In I this mean, movie? he is the protagonist. He is the protagonist. Oh, yeah. The, Again, it's probably. Where's not John David moral. Washington when you need him? You need a protagonist. <laughs> it's probably not as morally black and white as that. Um, however, I think most audiences will be rooting for him to get his revenge on Fielder. I'll put it that way. Um, but uh yeah so that was a nice change i guess but yeah i think he gives a you know i think he gives a good performance again i don't think it's like one of the standout elements of the movie but like you can definitely see his passion just like the grunting the yelling the, the like, physicality obviously the physically what he did yeah. yeah to get himself ready for this movie like um he's a tank uh, up there on screen like you know just going around and ripping people's hearts out and stuff like i said so um Again, I think that's what this role really calls for is someone to be physically imposing because the whole idea, like we were talking about, is that he's the brawn of the operation, right? Like it's supposed to be this sort of team up between him and Olga um, and he's to provide the physical strength. And what has he been doing, you know, in all of these years since his father died? Um, He's been, you know, out with these Viking like marauders basically going through these towns um, killing people, bulking up physically, it seems, um, in order to get himself ready for this. So, um, you know, I think in that regard, yeah, I, I totally believed him and, you know, his single-minded anger and, you know, drive to achieve his goal of, you know, avenging his father, saving his mother, killing Fjolner, um, and so I think the performance was successful because, um, you know, it it was perhaps you could say it was one dimensional, but like so so is the character. Um, so I think, you know, he, he did what he was asked to do. Yeah, it certainly felt like he understood the assignment. Yeah. Uh, in this role and 
maybe that's exactly what he wanted, right? I mean, it's nice to see him evolve over the course of his career from being the husband of Nicole Kidman to being the son of Nicole Kidman. I mean, that is true evolution um, in, in performances from Indeed. modern day Big Little Lies to to now. He's still making out with her in both in both. I was going to say instances. they still smooch in both of them. <laughs> so uh, there, that will say there, that was the scene that was like particularly. I was like, oh man, <laughs> they're really going for it in this yeah. one. Like. Nicole Kidman is is full psycho in this film. That's when I mean that's the scene when you realize that you know she's really she's really in on the act too. Which great is, scene, which is a great scene. Yeah, I mean disturbing I, I was, as hell. But. I will just say like I was, and I thought that that was where they were going to go with it. Um, yeah, when same. we got to that scene, but yeah. also I was like really hoping that that's where they were going to go, and they weren't going to go for the cookie cutter. Like, oh yeah, she has also been pretending wanting revenge yeah. this entire time. Um, I didn't know they were so, going to go full like I hated your father. I went yeah, and killed. Yeah. I thought they were going to go like they turned. I did this to, to survive. Like he's nice. Yeah. Um, but that yeah, no, I uh, I thought that that was a great. It was very satisfying when that scene played out how I wanted it to. The the woman next to me, who will be my continuous reference point for all things in this movie, was just shaking her head when they were like <laughs> making out. They were just, she was like, mm -mm, nope. <laughs> You have to let everyone else know that you morally object to what's going on. Again, this is just movies nowadays. Like, I mean, to I, be fair, I, I think it, it is morally objectionable. To, to yeah, I know, but I was doing it through the entirety of Red Rocket. I was shaking my head the whole time just because I wanted to make sure people knew. I if you really wanted a virtue signal, Scott, you should have got up and left. If you really wanted a virtue signal. I should have. should have pulled a Ken Jeong on the masked singer. I mean, we stand with Ken Jeong. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> We don't we don't have time to talk about uh, talk about Rudy Giuliani on the mess. <laughs> Surely on this podcast, our podcast is not long enough for that. Um, where were we? I'm completely sidetracked now. Okay, we're talking about Nicole Kidman. Yeah, like she she did well. I mentioned that already. Kleist Bang, who's like probably I guess the, like the least known of the major players in the cast. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Annie Taylor Joy to, to some audiences is less less known than Kleist Bang. I don't know. Um, I mean, he did the Dracula stuff. A couple years ago on the with a bbc miniseries thought he was really good as you honestly i like honestly he might have even he's doing something very different than obviously what what alexander skarsgård is doing who i think is doing just something incredibly physical and stuff um but i got i really liked him him as fjolner i thought he was actually really good even though he didn't get that much screen time in the film um agree disagree shrug yeah no i mean good again solid does what the role asks for him, understands the assignment, whatever you want to say. I don't know that I can point to anything specific about it that, like, I, you know, particularly thought was great. Um, but well, I think kind of like with um, Nicole Kidman, I think that you get this very clear image of of who the character is in the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. And then I, I think that the second half of the film tries to turn that a bit on its head. It, yeah. yeah, and show you that this guy's not as bad and then may even be less bad than the person Amleth is trying to avenge and his father. And I think that that definitely it look, I'm not saying this film dives into deep more like morality themes, but I think it, it does give you something to think about with regards to if you are rooting for Amleth's revenge, how do you feel about that when you sit down and think about these things? Um, we'll say his son, his younger son uh, Gunner. that he had yeah. with Nicole Kidman was uh he was he had some king joffrey vibes i will say he was uh, a little bit of a brat the older son wasn't any better joffrey vibes 
<laughs> I w- see, th- that's so funny because I would have said the older son had King Joffrey vibes. Well, they they both did. They, I guess they both do to some regard, but I don't know. It, it was the the younger son. The fact that he was younger, I guess, is he was just trying to get in on the action, man. He just wanted to play some. I don't remember the name of the game or whatever, but uh, not a liquor. I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, he really just did. I, I basic... doubt that that was it, but yeah. Well, yeah, it was close, you know, but probably not. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, those are the main characters. I mean, Willem Dafoe has his cameo as well. You know, fun times with Willem Dafoe and a Robert Eggers movie. Why not? If you want to watch a really wild <laughs> Dafoe performance in an Eggers movie, go watch The Lighthouse. You'll certainly get more more mileage out of Dafoe's performance in that one because he won't be dead in the first 15 minutes. Ralph Innocent, speaking of The Green Knight, uh, he didn't really do anything in this movie, to be clear, but just thought I had to bring him up because... He's you know a mainstay in these medi- medieval films. It seems, and he like. was in The Witch. Like he played the main, he played the father in The Witch. So, well, that's uh, true. Again, yeah, another person that he has a relationship with, like he obviously does with Anya and with uh, Willem Dafoe now. Yeah, I in- yeah, that is interesting. I I didn't know that because I hadn't seen The Witch. But that I wonder if he had has a minor role in The Lighthouse. I mean, because there's, there's really only two performances of any length or significance in The Lighthouse. But there's a bunch of like minor characters you see for like a couple minutes i wonder if he's one of them um i have to go back and double check that that was one of the funny things about the green knight was that ralph anderson plays the green knight and kate dickey plays the queen and kate and they were the the couple in the witch so um they worked Mm. together in that movie too but anyway yeah maybe uh david lowry and robert eggers are sharing notes or something i don't know yeah (laughs) scott i mean honestly i'm there, I mean, look, I could sit here for like an hour and talk about the production design of this film. I mean, it's pretty incredible. The cinematography, the realism. I mean, I, I did want to make some sort of like weird Sam Elliott joke about they tried to convince me this was Iceland when it was when they shot this film in Ireland. But I didn't really have enough time before the podcast to, to formulate a good enough joke to make there. Um, but Scott, like any other stuff you want to add? Anything of the elements of the production, et cetera, stuff like that? I I, I just feel like. The story is what the story is. Um, we've shared our our qualms with that, and the real where this really shines is Eggers and the production value. Anything that we haven't mentioned yet that you want to talk about? Yeah, it's a classic revenge tale. I will say, like the ritual sequence in the beginning. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I got a whole lot from that. If I'm being honest, maybe, maybe it, I'm just a little soured by it because there was a fart joke in there, which again, mm. uh, I guess, is another Eggers. Uh, Egger staple because he does I like his part that the lighthouse was yeah. was filled with them but um I, I don't know that it gave me a whole lot other than like the the dog thing i guess right like we see them you know barking like dogs or whatever which kind of comes into effect wolves. later in the movie I think they're howling like wolves okay well anyway yeah. but either either way he does it later in the movie and it like triggers all the dogs slash wolves whatever they are there in in fielders village and makes them all go crazy but um i don't know that i got a whole lot from that ritual sequence uh, it that was one of those things where it almost felt like he was just doing weird for the sake of weird which way. is how i felt about um, most of the lighthouse to be honest yeah. um so uh, other times i thought you know like i thought the stuff with bjork really worked like that was obviously a weird moment but like but also like that that's like such a classic shakespeare thing i mean i know hamlet yeah. is not really like that but macbeth obviously i mean that's like a quintessential element of of shake of like shakespeare i know this isn't a shakespeare adaptation i understand that but like 
it, it's that felt in character with the film as opposed to like just trying to be weird. And very like it honestly kind of reminded me of the Green Knight too, with what they did with his mother, the with Sarita Chowdhury playing his mother in the Green Knight. Um, that was kind of similar there, but agreed. I mean, uh, look, there's I think like, there's so many parallels where you could yeah. draw with like the the vibe of the film of the two films. Yeah. Um, so that was the other part of the movie that I was just kind of like, sure, whatever. Um, it, it didn't. It, I think that yeah. the movie probably could have done without that scene. Sure. Um, but it was more time with Ethan Hawke, which unfortunately yeah. there wasn't a lot of. I mean, there there couldn't be because of what the plot was for the movie. Um, but mm -hmm. it was it was disappointing just to see you know one of my favorite actors here killed cut off down in his prime minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I guess he had 400 episodes of Moon Knight to go film, so yeah, couldn't couldn't be hanging around oh, here. Get the jabs on. I, I like him <laughs> in Moon Knight because I was I was actually about to make a Moon. I wasn't gonna make a joke. I was gonna say it was really funny going from watching episode four of Moon Knight or whatever like a couple of days ago um, to you know walking into the theater to watch this because it, it's he's kind of I mean like they're very different they're very different things. He's not playing the same character. But like he's kind of doing a similar thing, I feel like in both. Um, you know, he's probably not a good guy, but like tries to portray himself as a good guy. I mean, he's the villain, to be clear. In Moon Knight, he's he's definitely not a, a good guy in Moon Knight. But you know, there's a lot of time and mileage spent justifying his actions or whatever. Um, in that, now, I would say you could argue whether that is done very well or not, but there is some time spent trying to justify his actions in this here. And I think that like, I kind of felt like that's what was happening in this film as well, where it's like he comes back. You don't get too strong of a sense of it, but he's clearly he's not someone who wants to be a husband or a father, really. Like he wants to be a father to the extent that he wants to have an heir, but he doesn't really like want to be a father. Um, and so it presents us this character who's you know not necessarily uh one that we want to vibe with hard but gives this performance and obviously in this film he goes away and then it's just a memory that you know amleth is trying to avenge i think ethan hawk is like good in the film I, I sort of on the level with everyone else no no notes or complaints really about the performance um is he, he his accent was a little sketchy, even everyone's accent for the short sketchy, amount of time he was on screen. Except for Skarsgård, everyone's accent was a little sketchy. Well, I think uh, Anya was just doing her new mutants accent again. So she was doing her. I'm I, okay. That's actually fair because she's technically from Russia in this film. Like she's mm -hmm. from the territory yeah, of yeah. Russia, so I guess that accent kind of makes sense. From Rus. From Rus, yeah. Um, so I'll give her a pass as well, but I don't know what Nicole Kidman is doing with her accent in this movie. No idea. I mean, maybe it's even accurate. I don't know. I don't know. But I was just like, all right, I got that. That is, those are, those are the way, that's the way you're saying those words, um, which is pretty much how I felt about it. But that's fine. Look, I don't care. After Florence Pugh and like Black Widow, accents don't face me anymore. I just, I, had, I gave up on accents after that, unfortunately. Yeah. But overall, it's it's a revenge film, guys. Just vibe. Uh, I mean, you, so you talked about the early ritual scene. I guess this is the last thing before we wrap up. I'm on the same page as you. I, I felt like it was kind of ultimately necessary filler. So you get like a little bit more time 
with younger Amleth and, and under less about like what's actually happening in the ritual and more about this is the bond he had with his father. Like he really wanted to be with his father. Like he wanted to be his father yeah. when he grew up. And so I think that that helps you understand the motivations a little bit better. So fine. That's fine. Whatever. What did you think of the sort of equivalent scene when he gets back to the Icelandic village where he wanders into, you know, this cave one night and there's whatever, like the, it's not Willem Dafoe, but like the Willem Dafoe equivalent um, now. And then he sends him off to go find the sword. Like, what, what did you think of those, that sort of like pair of scenes? I think yeah, I like I those a little bit better. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with that again because I felt like it was serving a purpose. Like, again, it was, he had to go find the sword, right? And this is like, you know, he's where where do I look for the weapon? Yeah. Um, and so you have to have it. That again, it was almost like a green knight type thing of like, totally. there's these spirits, people, whatever, whoever they are, they're going to like aid you in your journey along the way. I mean, um, I think it's, I think it's meant to be like a, a, a witch, like a, I don't know, like a, yeah, war, yeah something like that. Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's just, that's just like classic medieval quest stuff, I guess is what. Ah, um, uh, yes. The quest I'm saying, but which this movie kind of is to, you know, at it oh. on a very basic level um, is one of those movies. So I didn't mind much of that stuff along the way. Um, it's just like, you know, again, all the like scatological humor and like the just other barking like dogs and wolves, whatever. That was just a little. OK, fine. We get it, Rob. You know, Scott, you, you just we get it, Bobby. You're not in touch with your inner alpha. That's the problem. I guess that's the so. problem in all this. Definitely not an alpha. So, guy, got to back up. What did you think of the last scene? I mean, volcano, oh, naked yeah. fight, big uh, revenge of the Sith vibes. Am I right? Sure. Um, two dudes. No one had the high ground. Lava. Though. Yeah, no one had the high ground. I, I, again, I kind of like. I mean, I liked how it ended up. I liked that they basically rendered his whole quest kind of futile in the end. Um, well, that kind of reminded me of the last duel a little bit, where it was like we've all we've been working towards this whole this you know this battle the entire movie um and then we get to the actual battle and it just feels like pointless basically um because of all the context that we now have for it um, i thought the 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 most one of the more interesting parts of the end of the movie for me right before the battle like when he's you know he's at the i guess the base of the volcano or whatever and he sees the bodies of you know his mother and and gunner her, yeah. I guess his her younger son, and he's like talking about still trying to, essentially trying to avenge them as well, in all this, and I and I found that we didn't get. I don't think we got a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie, and I thought it was a really interesting, more clever note than him like being deranged and jumping off the boat and swimming back. Like I thought it was more interesting that even after all of that has happened, that you know he killed them. That he's talking about avenging them. I thought that was like one of the more interesting yeah. sort of thematic notes that the film had, and more subtle than than some of the more you know obvious ones that like the stuff with Olga that is a bit heavy handed. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, naked guys on top of a volcano fighting to the death. Why not? There's you lava. You want. The floor is lava, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, favorite scene or moment. <laughs> I think it's probably the that Nicole Kidman scene for me with the reveal of her being like Team Fjolner all the way, basically. Um, yeah, she had a little I, pin on and everything. She had the badge. Yeah. 
Team and I like that they really dialed it up and Nicole Kidman really bought in and like went to like full on deranged territory with her performance 100%. in that scene. Um, so I thought that was a, you know, we're talking a lot about sort of the action, the sensory aspects and everything in the movie. I thought that was one scene where the story and characters and everything actually really worked. Yeah, I, I got to say, in, in terms of like actual story elements, I mean, goodness that that one hits hard um and for good reason i think for me there were some i, I mean a, as expected probably it's going to be some weird camera tricks that are that are going to get me going in this film i won't pick the obvious ones which i think are some of the early scenes of them around that villa the, the 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 russian village um i think there's like that would be a really easy pick to do like the one shot there or something like that i think one of the ones that i like is related to that ritual, the the second ritual scene, the one when he's a bit older, when he goes and finds the sword. I think that scene where he's, he's fighting like the undead guardian of the sword. And then at the end, it like pans back around. He's still standing in front of the with the sword. Like I like uh, that that one shot right there. I was yeah, like, that was good. Hit me hard. Um, so I'm going to go with that. It's just something a little bit different. I think that's like a really cool. Well, one really cool scene because it's one of the few scenes where Amleth is older, where he's like a, in, in a defensive mindset, like he's not prepared to fight this sort of like spiritual guardian or whatever of the sword. Um, but then also, also has the camera work as well. So really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Out of 10, what are you giving the Northman? 8.8. .8. It's a great experience. Uh, I really uh, got mostly what I wanted from the movie. Again, we talked about some issues, but, yeah. Ultimately, I think this movie delivered on what I was expecting and wanting from it. So 8.8. .8. Yeah, I think mostly agreed with that description. It, it does have some setbacks for sure, but it's able to overcome it mostly. 8.3 for me um, on Letterboxd. I think I said I gave it an extra half star for just going so damn hard. And uh, I, gen I genuinely uh, stick with that, I think. Yeah. All right, that should do it for our discussion of The Northmen. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be talking about some some long overdue news specifically around the Barbie cast that Scott's been like texting me every hour of every day to, that he wanted to talk about on the podcast. So we, we're finally going to give him some license to talk about it. Uh, we're talking about that. And then also we're going to revisit our most anticipated of 2022 lists uh, because of course it's been a month since we recorded and a movie has been delayed to 2023. So we'll talk about that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. All right, Scott, I'm putting a timer on. You got 10 minutes to talk about the Barbie cast. <laughs> Rave furiously for as long as you'd like. No, I mean, you know, I think the exciting names we've kind of gotten out of the way already with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling obviously being cast as Barbie and Ken. This is Greta Gerwig's uh, next film, uh, directing-wise at least, uh, which is her take on the character of Barbie. We've talked about it. Is she not before, writing it too? Course. Sorry, isn't she writing it as well? Yeah, she is. Oh, okay, sorry. Got it. I think Noah Baumbach and her are co-writing. But, um, 
But yeah, so this movie is kind of trying to compete with Oppenheimer, maybe for like biggest cast. Uh, I, I don't think it's quite <laughs> on that level yet because everyone's an Oppenheimer. She's got to cast about like ten to fifteen more more people before. I mean, they, they don't have to be anyone you ever heard of before, but you just have to cast yeah. ten or fifteen more people before you get to that point. Pretty much, uh, but you know, some of the other names now that have popped up and are going to be in this movie. Emma Mackey was one who we had heard was rumored kind of makes sense considering one of the things that people have said about her since you know she had her breakout on sex education was that she looks exactly like margot robbie so they're obviously going to have some fun with that in the movie in a sort of amy adams isla fisher type of way Um, i think that and also probably some like old barbie new barbie type drama yeah as well yeah um for sure uh simu liu who obviously yeah. just played shang chi and shang chi and the legend of the ten rings i am um, so fascinated to see what else he does with the movie stuff because i don't know like as as much as i was like kind of lukewarm whatever on on shang chi i enjoyed it it's fine thought he was good in it i like i like really want to like this guy and i don't know that i if i whether i do yet or not and i really want to i feel like he has like a good vibe mm-hmm. about him but i can't yeah I don't know. I hope I, I hope I like him. We also have like quite a few more like comedically minded performers, um, which, sure. you know, you expect this to be more of a comedy than anything. Um, but Kate McKinnon, obviously SNL veteran. Um, to be clear, this Will, is a rom- this is supposed to be a romantic comedy. So yeah. definitely more comedic lens to it. Uh, America Ferreira, Will Ferrell. Um, I don't know how much of a role he's going to have in the movie because he, he was kind of like, you know, basically with all the other cast members, whereas you would expect that to be a bigger casting maybe. But he is going to play the CEO of the toy company, I guess, of Mattel, right? President uh, who makes Barbie. So, yeah, basically reprising his role from the Lego movie, I would expect, which is great. It's a great role. He's great in it. Uh, Michael Sarah. Um Again, you know, he's he's dabbled in both, but maybe he's had more success with doing comedies like Superbad and Jupiter more well known like for for the comedy. Yeah. I mean, yes, he has certain certain stuff that's dramatic, but um, so we have an Issa Rae as well, another um, you know actor Comedian. we would associate with comedy. Yeah. Um, Kingsley so, Benadir. You know, so, we got to say Kingsley Benadir. Yeah, well, I was getting there. So, oh, sorry, and then sorry. you know, just kind of some other random people popping up, like Kingsley Benadir, right? Like we haven't really seen him in that much since 2020, when we thought, you know, he was he had a big moment with One Night in Miami, um, and he, I don't know whether he's going to be in anything this year or not. But um, I think there's at least one other movie that he's going to be in. I think that we've heard about, but I can't remember what it is. But um he's well, been he cast is, in this so he is going to be in in secret invasion sort of that big sort of like avengers like marvel tv show like limited okay. series okay. so i don't know if he's had a lot of time filming that or maybe yeah. i don't know fair marvel got him he um, did play obama in the comey rule the, the that tv show from okay. i think it was showtime right. i don't remember which one yeah um but he's going to be in the movie. Interesting. Not somebody I would have expected to be cast in this, but, um, you know, we'll see uh, what he can do. Emerald Fennell, um, obviously Academy Award winner for her script uh, for Promising Young Woman in 2020, um, but kind of started out as an actress, at least, you know, as an actress was on The Crown. So yeah. that's kind of her notable role. I think was Emmy nominated maybe even for her role in The Crown. but um, Maybe. She is going to be in this film as well. Um, and Alexandra Ship, who we saw at the end of last year in Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, yeah. I thought was pretty good in that movie. So 
um, she's going to be popping up here too. So just a lot of random, uh, you know, performers again, a lot of them maybe more down the comedic route, which you would expect, but then uh, kind of some wild cards in there like Simu Liu and like uh, Kingsley Benadier that I'm interested to see what they can bring uh, to this movie that I'm sure is going to be awesome. Like I have no reason to believe it's not going to be. So. Confirming. Emerald Fennell is, in fact, Emmy-nominated for The Crown, which I yeah, did not okay, realize. So. But she's also nominated, I believe, for Killing Eve as well. So she's not just nominated okay. for The Crown. Not acting. That's for writing. She right, wrote, right. She wrote season two, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. Yeah, look. <laughs> crazy cast. Um, we did start throwing around the whole Nolan Oppenheimer joke. I think in the last one was announced with, like, Fennell and Benadir and Will Ferrell and stuff. It was just, like, kind of absurd. That there's still people being cast in this film. And it's supposed to be a romantic comedy. It's not even like this big ensemble drama like Oppenheimer. It's just it's just this romantic comedy film with Barbie figures, presumably. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that, to, yeah. be, fair, to be completely fair. But um, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I'm not just saying it because she makes some, one of my favorite, some of my favorite movies. But Greta Gerwig, uh, you know, it seems like she's the type of person that you'd really want to work with. Like the Little Women cast. In addition to the fact that she's just a brilliant filmmaker, like the Little Women cast, it seems like they were all really close with her and everything during the yeah movie. I'm curious. I mean, so many stories came out in 2019, obviously around like Olivia Wilde it being someone that people really enjoyed working on a film with, as, as she is a director for things like Booksmart. Her style certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, and she she enjoyed it too. To be fair, I'm sure. But but I, I think maybe something similar can be said for Greta Gerwig, and I think that it's it's I think it's really interesting when when it's really clear that people, for whatever reason, it can be because they're a really great person to work with or they just make really interesting films or both, um, as it might be the case, that people want to work with someone. I always find that to be really interesting. The wild card being like people complaining about David O. Russell being horrible to work with, but then like he has these just most ridiculous ensemble casts that he gets for his films. I don't understand that. Like something's not squaring up there, um, which, you know, maybe we'll get to the bottom of as his next movie comes out. But with... With this film, yeah, crazy cast. It's clear that people, I or for whatever reason, want to work with Greta Gerwig. You know, whether it's one of the things that I said or both, and I always think that makes for better films. I might that might be crazy for me to say, but it has it, thus far. Yeah, it seems like it makes for a good movie when that is when that's the vibe you have on set with people who really want not not just because they're getting paid, but like want to be there, want to be working with these people. Um, I think I think that's really exciting. And I think a lot of these names, maybe they're not A-list stars besides Gosling and, and Robbie. And I mean, I think Will Ferrell's not really that anymore. But I think these are people who we we respect for maybe the limited breadth of work that they've done for the most part. You know, maybe some exceptions. But I think overall, good stuff for Barbie. Yeah. All right. The other thing, Scott, I have to rip the bandaid off at some point. Our most anticipated 2022 lists weren't going to hold up forever. We were hoping probably that they would hold up a little bit longer than they did, at least at least for mine, which is the one that's being affected. Was this my number one or my number two? I don't even remember. It was my number one. It was my number two. Yeah. Uh, this past week, we did hear that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 has been delayed to 2023. So originally, it was supposed to come out, I believe, in like October, November timeframe. So a similar window, not the same, but a similar window that it was spo- that the original Film came out back in 2019, 2018, 2018. Um, but it has been delayed to early, I think, 2023. I think it's like 
maybe the first half of the year, maybe summer. I think it's supposed to have a summer release. And that is also pushed back part two of the film to early 2024 as well. Um, so that's a bit of a bummer. Um, it was going to happen at some point. It was probably fitting that it was me this year instead of you, since you had your top two get pushed last year. Uh, I have full faith and confidence that Netflix is not going to screw me on Knives Out 2, uh, partially because I know Ryan Johnson has another thing that he's working on that's coming out at the beginning of the next year that I'm sure he's going to have to finish Knives Out 2 before. So with that said, um, Ryan, don't let me down on Knives Out 2. You can't push my number one and number two to next year. Scott, what are your thoughts it on, on it this? It has happened show? before. Uh, it has, it's true. Number one and number two has got pushed. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say I'm glad that it was you this time and not me. But um, yeah, you know, it's disappointing, but like I can wait for this movie. Like, yeah, it's Spider-Man, which we certainly have had our fill of Spider-Man. Um, and again, I talked about it on the most anticipated episode. Um, you know, I think the first Spider-Verse was great because it was a such a breath of fresh air, despite being about this character that we thought we, you know, were done with or were fatigued with. Um, so I have no doubt that the second one can also be that. Um, but, you know, this is not a movie like, you know, The Northman or something where I was like disappointed, like, very disappointed when it got delayed. Or, I mean, I, I don't even think it really got delayed. I think I don't I just don't think it. Ended I mean, I told you as soon as you put that on your list that. that yeah. Was- it wasn't going to come out. But year. anyway, like like other movies that have that were pushed, um, like even something like Mission Impossible, right, which um, continues to get pushed. Yeah, is a franchise movie, too. But yeah, it keeps getting pushed like that. That actually is quite disappointing to me for this. Like, it's not a significant delay, really, it seems. And, um, you know, it's something that I can wait for, I guess, is, is what I'm saying, even though I do expect it to be really good. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I try not to get too... I mean, I make my jokes around Knives Out too. you can't be delayed and stuff like that. I'm okay with these delays. Like, there's always so many movies coming out, that, especially that we see, like, one more movie getting pushed to next year. That's okay. Like, it's not the end of the world for me. Obviously, I'd love to see it sooner rather than later, but I'd rather it be done, finished, and good. Especially when it comes to animated, where more time does equal more polish. Generally speaking, like, it's more... I think that relationship is more linear than than traditional films. I mean, this delay might be because it's just, it's just like literally just not ready. Not that it's a bad time to release the film, which is sometimes why you see with delays. Um, Not to say that delays aren't driven by movies not being ready, but like there's more going on with animated films in terms of production um, than filming, right? Like filming is is obviously such a huge part. And then it, it takes, it's a behemoth to edit a film, obviously, but there's, you know, there's more, Production and post-production, I feel like, is a little bit more blurred, I guess is what I'm trying to say with animated films, which is maybe an obvious thing, uh, an obvious statement to make. But that's okay. If it's getting delayed and it's getting more polished and it's getting better, then I don't have a problem with it at all. But yeah, we'll see. Knives Out 2 seems like it's still coming out this year. I'd be surprised if it didn't. Everything else seems secure. It does make for 2023 being pretty crazy, though, in terms of franchise movies for me. Because you get Mission Impossible. I think I think it's number seven finally going to come out. <laughs> Uh, next year and Not there's uh, yeah across the spider verse and there's stuff i probably don't even think about yet that's coming out obviously as well i mean we're not gonna have like a nolan or a fincher movie but um yeah we'll see 2023 bounds all right that should do it for today's episode of some like it scott episode 188 where can people find you on twitter i'm at scarby dent on all social media all right, and you can find me at, at Shelton2013 
on Twitter, Letterboxd, etc. You can also follow our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check out the different reward tiers over there. Um, if you're willing to support us enabled, we'd love that. If not, that's okay too. You can still find us wherever you find our podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., where we'd appreciate if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And that'll do it. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in two weeks with a review of the new Marvel film that is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. TBD, if Scott watches the first Doctor Strange movie before that, I'm going to get a nod or a shake of the head on this. I'll do it. Yeah. Okay, sure, he's I'll doing watch. it. He's going to watch the first one. He won't be disappointed. Rachel McAdams is in the first one. He'll be fine. Uh, so we'll be back in a couple weeks with, with that review. We hope you'll join us then. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you then.